My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at FAM. We are excited that all of you are with us today, and it's a great morning to be here, isn't it? Are you guys excited to be here? Because after today, this happened, this happened last year and it's happening this year, usually our lowest attended Sunday of the year is the Sunday of the week that school gets out. And so after we survive this Sunday, everything is uphill from here, and so that's exciting, all right? But we are here at Fam Church to lead people of all backgrounds to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's what we're here for. We're here to reach our community. We're here to see lives changed and transformed. And Ashley Darrow told me a great story when we were over snow, scooping snow cones on Friday at Spence Park for the city's uh, Splash Bash. That's what it was called, right? Splash, the Splash Party, the Water Party. I don't know what it was called. But they had this event, and we are over, over scooping snow cones and she had this new neighbor move in that had a couple of kids and they were talking to the kids and they told the kids that they went to church and uh, um, they said hey ask your mom if you can come with us and so one Wednesday night she brought the kids to church and they just loved it. They loved our Wednesday night programming, our rangers and our girls' ministry. And so the boy, I mean, he just kept wanting to come back. And he'd come for several weeks. And finally, Commander Sean gave him a Bible. And I guess this Bible has radically changed his world. It has rocked it. He loves to read the thing. He's always asking questions about what's in there. He's excited about what he is learning. And see, that's what we're here for. That's a family that does not go to church. He had been to church one time his entire life, and his sister had never been to church. And that's the impact that fam church and the power of inviting somebody to church can make. And so that's why we are here to see that happen. That's why our slogan is each one reach one this year, because we want to see lives changed like that. And, uh, and so that's a great story. But, but if you're here for the first time this morning, we're glad that you are here with us today. Um, if you're here and you're saying to yourself, man, I don't know if I should even be in church. I've got questions. I've got doubts. I'm not even sure God exists. Can I tell you? Many of us have been in that spot. Many of us have been in that place. And we understand what you're going through, what you're thinking. This is a church where it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. You can ask us those questions. We might not be able to answer them. But we would, we would be more than happy to talk with you about your questions. And we're, we're continuing our series called Caged this morning. And the title comes from the fact that many of us, we feel trapped in life. We feel like we are in a cage in life. We look at other people's lives, we say, man, they've got it all together. But when I look at mine, all of these things have me trapped. All of these things keep me from what God is calling me to live. And so, and so to, in order to um, kind of set up what we're going to talk about this morning, um, um, we want to talk about love. Okay, and uh, you know we we love a lot of things, right? We got a lot of love going on in our lives. I uh, noticing from quite a few of your Facebook and uh, uh, posts on Facebook that a lot of you guys like puppies and kitties and soft little furry things, right? Just like this dog right here. He's just, they're so cute. And, and you look at those and it's so sweet and you just share posts and you share videos because the dogs are just so cute. The kitties are just so cute and lovable. Or in America, we love cars, don't we? We've got a love affair with the car. I mean, there's some people in this church who like literally spend their spare time polishing, waxing, and cleaning their car. It's always got to look perfect. It's always got to look great. And man, one day I'm going to own the car that I want to own. Okay, I, so all my life had to have minivans. I hate those things. I can't wait till I'm free from those things. I got a story about the minivan coming up a little bit later in the message. But man, I want to have a Jeep. So I can drive down the road with the top off, with the doors off, with the back off. You know, just laughing at the people driving down the road trapped in a box. Now, 
If I had to have a box on wheels, it would be this one. Okay, this is the Dodge Challenger with the Hellcat 707 horsepower engine. I've mentioned this car before. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a car that when you step on the gas pedal, your face just rips off and goes into the back seat, right? I mean, that's what we're looking for. The car we've got, you step on it, and you have to encourage the hamster that's under the hood. Come on, buddy. You can do this. I mean, that's just the way it is. Some of us, we love sunsets. Oh, man, if we could live in a spot where we looked at that every night, some of us would be loving our lives, right? It would be the most relaxing, amazing thing ever to look out our window and every night see this beautiful display. Or how about steak? Anybody in here love some steak? All right. Yeah, I love steak. I can eat steak almost every night. That's all I need to have is steak with a side of steak. And I would be doing just fine. And I love my steak. Those of you who have been with me when I've eaten steak, I love my steak rare. Okay? I can tolerate medium rare. Medium, all right, I'll deal with that. But listen, if you tell me medium well or well done, I'm going to question your salvation. All right? That's just the bottom line. But we love these things, don't we? So let's talk about a working definition for love in our service this morning. Love is probably best defined as something that we are willing to seek out and sacrifice for. And I think there's many things in this world that we would say, you know, I'm willing to seek out, but I don't know how sure I am, how willing I am to make a sacrifice for those things. Like, let's go back to those puppies that we had on the screen. These puppies were the Tibetan Mastiffs, okay? They're pretty expensive. The most expensive Tibetan Mastiff that's ever been sold went for $1.6 million dollars. How many of you are saying, I can do without that dog? Okay, yeah, I could totally do without the dog. I'd maybe seek it out, but I wouldn't sacrifice $1.6 million for the dog. Heck, I don't have $1.6 million to sacrifice for the dog. Or how about that car, that Dodge Challenger? That Challenger, $70,000 for a car. Okay, 70000 Some of you are sitting there going, that's not that much. Well, to me, that's scary money because I, I ran the car payment on that car and that car on a payment would cost, well, I would be paying more for that than I would my house. Okay, that's a little scary. And I just kind of find it a little bit insane to pay 70 grand for an asset that continually depreciates. Or how about that steak? That steak on the screen was an A5 Kobe strip steak. If you were to walk into a restaurant and ask for an A5 Kobe strip steak, that one 12-ounce steak would set you back $350. I hear that and I say, you know, Raymond noodles, they make a pretty good meal, don't they? Most of those things, we're not, we're, we'd maybe seek them out, but we're not willing to make any sort of sacrifice for those sorts of things. And, and I know some of you are probably thinking, okay, that's funny, we get it, that's humorous, loving steak, loving dogs, ha, ha, ha. But those are not the things that I really love. When I look at my life, I love my kids, I love my spouse. Those are the kind of things that I love, and I would sacrifice everything for them. Okay, let's talk real for a minute. Let's talk about God's love and loving God. Because one area of love that many people struggle with is God's love 
and loving God. There are many people, some of them even probably in this room right now, who if I were to walk up to them and say, hey man, God really loves you, you would pause and you would think and you would say to yourself, hmm, I don't know about that. And see, the reason that we would pause is there's twofold reasons, I think. The first one is we look at our past sin. We look at our life, we look at our past sins, we look at the things that we've done in the past, and we say, man, I've been too bad of a person for God to love me. I've done too many bad things. I've committed too much sin. I've got too much junk in my past, and and Jesus is sitting there holding it against me. It was horrible. It was terrible. There's no way that he can forgive me for that. Or maybe it's not that you don't think you can be forgiven, but maybe a pastor or another Christian has come to you and said, look, God doesn't love you because of the things that you've done in the past and you're carrying that kind of baggage around with you and you're saying to yourself, you know what? God must not love me if everybody is telling me that God doesn't love me. And the second thing that causes us to think we are caged away from God's love is our present circumstances. And this goes back to what we talked about last week. And if you'd like to hear last week's message on Caged, you can go to myfamchurch.com, click on the media tab. You can uh, go to our, our Fam Church app, open it up, and there it is. We got our messages in there. And you can also go to iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and subscribe to our podcast. And you can hear all of our previous messages on there. But uh, our present circumstances can be a cage all by themselves, but they can also cause us to doubt God's love and put us in another cage that keeps us from living in the freedom of the love of God. And as a follower of Jesus, living in the freedom of God's love is huge because knowing that God loves us more than we can imagine is a huge piece to freedom in our life. It's a big part of freedom from sins. It's a big part of stepping out in faith and into the plan that he has for our life. Too many people live trapped in this cage. And so this morning, we're going to attack that cage and help us get free from it. And so in order to do this, we're going to look at the life of one of Jesus' disciples. We're going to look at the life of a man named John. And, uh, and uh, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, s- uh, several clips of his life from different, gosp- different gospels. The gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, the first four accounts of Jesus' life. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written between 50 and 65 A.D. Uh, so that means they were written 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But the last one, John, was not written until about 90 A.D., which is a full 25 to 40 years after the other three. No one is certain why he waited so long before he wrote his book, but he did. We are fairly confident that he knew about the other three Gospels, and yet he still chose to write his account. Now, the Gospel of John is unique, and it's written in a different style. And I've heard a lot of people say, when when somebody gives their life to Jesus, the first book that they should read is the Gospel of John because it's easy. That is false, okay? It is the most complicated Greek uh, as far as the Greek language goes in the text of any of the Gospels, is the hardest to understand because of the style that he wrote in. Um, and, and John, he does something unique with his Gospel, okay? He gives himself a title. He gives himself a nickname. He gives himself something that he goes by in the book, and he calls himself in the book the one that Jesus loved. Now, I find that kind of strange. I find that kind of odd. I mean, don't you? 
I mean, if you're married, do you walk around introducing yourself like that? Hi, my name is Brian, the one that Dana loves. You know, we don't do that. It just, it seems strange, doesn't it? But yet here is John introducing himself in this text as the one that Jesus loved. And, and we can't be sure exactly why he put this nickname in here, why he gave himself that name. But, but I, I, I think that it could have something to do with his not being sure of Jesus loving him and him spending time in a cage that he broke through, that he broke out of into a full understanding of the love of God and he wanted everyone to know it. And that's my hope and my goal this morning that all of us will understand how much God loves us so that we can be set free from this cage. And our starting point, our launching point for this is going to be Matthew uh, chapter uh, 4. And you can also, if you want to, after you get to Matthew, uh, you can go to Luke chapter 9, John 15, and John 21. We're going to be hopping around. Sorry about that. I usually try not to do that, but just so you can be prepared for that. And if you don't know where Matthew is at, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If the only testament you know is a thrash metal band, we're going to have the words on the screen behind me. If you are here this morning and you do not have a Bible and you would like one, please stop by our Fam Connections desk on your way out. They will put a brand new Bible in your hands. And so we're going to start reading in verse 18 of Matthew 4. And uh, we're going to read through verse 22, and this is what it says there. It says, As Jesus was walking besides the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And this is where we meet John in the New Testament, and he's working with his father as a fisherman. And so I want to just kind of explain to you how John ended up as a fisherman. Because it's always interesting to find out how people get into the careers that they work, especially in this time. And, and Jewish culture was a little bit different. Their education uh, w- was handled a certain way. And this is how it was handled. The boys, once they turned the age of five, were sent to the local synagogue for their education. Okay? And it was only the boys that went for education. Okay? The girls all got to stay home with mom and not go to school. And I know all of the girls in here are currently in school are saying to themselves, man, why can't we go back to that time? And all the women in here who have benefited from a good education are saying, thank God we're not in that time anymore. But, uh, but the boys, they went to this from the age of five to the age of 12. And they would show up at the synagogue and the rabbi would be their teacher. And, and what they were taught was the first five books of the Old Testament. They spent their days memorizing it. They spent their days studying it. And they spent their days applying what it said. They learned nothing else, okay? There was no Hebrew, uh, Hebrew 1 and Hebrew 2 and Hebrew 3. There was no history. There was no algebra class. There was no calculus class. There wasn't even PE, okay? They spent their days learning the Torah, which is what they called the first five books, what, they, what the Jews call the first five books of the Old Testament every day for the entire time that they were there. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever read the first five books of the Old Testament, But once you get past the exodus from Egypt, 
It's kind of challenging to read, okay? It's, it's, it's not the most engaging stuff that you've ever read in your life. And as a matter of fact, I've talked to many Christians who have told me, yeah, man, once I get to the, to the Exodus stuff, once I get past that, I just skip over to Joshua. I don't even read the rest of it because it's just so boring. I can't get through it. Well, these guys had to memorize it. Be happy you weren't there. But the education system served a second purpose. The second purpose was this. They needed to find the next generation of rabbis. And so as these boys went through school, the rabbis in the local synagogues were watching the young men who were there to learn. They were watching them to see which ones seemed to have skill in, 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 in interpreting, in memorizing, and, and, and in expounding on what the law said. And what they would do with these boys is the rabbis would take these special boys after they graduated and would pair them up with a rabbi from the rest of the Jewish nation, a well-known, a very important rabbi, and put them with him and serve as an apprentice to learn more about what it meant to be a rabbi. Okay, and so the guy we talked about last week, Paul, he went through this whole process. That's how he got into what he got into. And I know we didn't go into much background, but he was a Jewish leader. He was, a, he was, a, he was an important person uh, as far as the Jews went in their religious system before he became a Christian. And so if you were not selected to continue your rabbinical training, you were sent back home to your father. You were just deemed an ordinary, regular, everyday guy, and you'd go home and learn from your father a skill to provide for your family. And that's what happened to John. He did his seven years of school, but he was deemed as ordinary, plain, nothing special, so he was sent home to learn how to fish, just like his father. And the first thing that we can take away from this is there are many people out there that think that they have to be something special. They have to be something important. They have to have some insight, some wisdom, some knowledge, some power from God in order for God to love them for who they are, in order to be called the one that Jesus loved and be set free from this cage. But the deal is this. You do not have to be anyone special for God to love you. Okay, he doesn't look upon you and say, how much of the New Testament do you have memorized? How much do you pray? How much do you worship? He doesn't look at any of that stuff and say, you know what? You are awesome. You are lovable. You are somebody important. You are so important that I can use you in my kingdom. These other people that aren't doing as much, they're not as good. They're not as important. They're not as lovable. And so I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to love them. I'm not going to care about them. And so if you are in this cage today thinking God can't love you because you are not that awesome, it's simply not true. John knew that he was the one that Jesus loved, even though he was nothing special. Okay, well, I get that. Maybe I don't need to be special, but that's not the only problem that I have that keeps me caged from God and his love. Another problem I have is I'm just too dirty. I'm too bad of a person, and that is why I'm in this cage and know that God doesn't love me like he does other people. So let's go back to John. John was a fisherman. How many of you guys in this room would consider yourself fishermen or maybe fisherwomen? Seems like it'd be a pretty fun career, doesn't it? You get a boat, you get rods and reels and a big truck to pull the boat. You know, that's your, and you're like, oh, this is, I'm going to spend my days just out on the water, relaxing, having a good time, just doing this and this and this and this. And we get this idea of how nice and relaxing and peaceful and awesome it would be to be a fisherman. 
And uh, watching TV shows, that's kind of the impression that you get about fishermen, right? You watch those TV shows. I don't know who's out there, who the popular guys, but when I was a kid, it was Roland Martin. He was always out there. Doing, he had his fishing show, and you just watch him fish for bass, and you're like, man, I wish I had that guy's job. You know, we had a, uh, the guy who ran our tech department in Ocala. His son is a professional fisherman, and he actually has TV shows that are on ESPN, and he would show me pictures of the, the fish that his son would catch fishing both the fresh and the saltwater uh, waters of Florida. And it was just amazing. It was incredible. And I looked at these pictures, and I would always say to myself, man, that's a career I want to have right there. But do you know what? That's not the normal, average fisherman. Okay, that's what we think is a normal fisherman. A normal fisherman is not the guys that we see in the fancy boats doing the glamour shots with the cool shades on ESPN. Okay, the normal fishermen are the guys that we see on the TV show, The Deadliest Catch. Okay, those are the actual fishermen that are out there. Okay, these guys smoke hard. They drink hard. They smell bad. They work hard. They are sketchy. They are dirty. They are rough, gruff, foul-mouthed, and ready to fight. So John was probably not that great of a guy. He was probably the guy who was at the bar on a Friday night getting really drunk and looking to get into a fight with someone, okay? That's not a lovable guy. But do you know that being dirty, smelly, rough, gruff, foul-mouthed, bar-fighting person, person Jesus is looking for? As a matter of fact, it's a prerequisite to becoming a follower of Jesus. Everyone who has ever come to Jesus has come as somebody who is completely unlovable. Everyone who has ever come to Jesus has been dirty beyond their ability to clean up. See, I've had people tell me, hey, because you're a pastor, you must have lived a pretty good life when you were younger because God wouldn't use you for that unless you lived this good life that he could use. No, that's not true. When I met Jesus, I was just as unlovable as anyone else. And that's the thing that we got to remember. There's nobody in this world that God looks down and says, well, you know, all these other punks, not lovable, but dang, you, you are good. That's not God. That's not who we are. We are sinful. We are corrupt. We are dirty. We are nasty. There is nothing lovable inside of us. And so don't let the cage of not loving God hold you back from what God has for you because you believe that you're too dirty to be in God's presence, to be loved by God, to be cared for by God. And some of you, those are not the cages that hold you. For some of you, you know that you don't have to be special. You know God has forgiven your past. Your struggle is the present. See, so you look at your life and you know that you haven't been the greatest follower of Jesus. You know that there's still a lot of sin in your life, and because of that sin, you know that God doesn't love you as much as he loves everyone else. You know you are in a cage and it's your own fault. And the thought that crosses your mind is that you need to clean the mess up, and once you get your mess cleaned up, God's going to love you, and God's going to set you free from that cage so that you can be lovable once again. So let's talk about cleaning up our own messes. So as I mentioned, uh, we had this, uh, we, we've had a lot of minivans, or no, we've had two minivans. Uh, our first one was a Dodge Caravan. It was a blue Dodge Caravan. And we, we got it uh, when we were living in Boston. 
And uh, it was a nice car. I mean, when we got it, it was a, a lease return. It had 36,000 miles on it. It was one year old. It was very clean. It was very well kept. It was a very nice van, and it was, it was blue inside and out. And, uh, and so we had this van, and not long after getting this van, um, uh, the pastor of the church that I was working for asked me to bring some paint from our church office to our church sanctuary. Our offices were about two miles from the main uh, church building where we held our services at. And so I said, okay, not a problem. And so I, I loaded up all of this paint in our probably two-month-old minivan or that we'd had two months, and, uh, and I put it in there. Well, what I did not know was that one of the cans of paint was yellow, and that can of paint, the lid was not on properly. Now, if you've ever lived in a climate where it snows, you know that snow and ice and cold are never nice to roads. And so what happens is in the middle of winter, you've got potholes everywhere. Well, then in the spring and the summer, they come and fill those potholes. But sometimes the filling that they put in those potholes is just as bad as having the hole there. It's like they take a shovel, go, and they're like, all right, that's good. They don't smooth it out. They don't level it out. So you get these roads that are, even in the middle of summer, you're driving on them, and they're like this. And then the road that I had to drive on to go from the church office to the church, that was one of those roads, okay? They just kind of patched here and there. And they were always seemed to be doing work on this road. And so it was just a jacked up mess. And, and, so, and so I get in the car. I put the paint cans in the car. I'm being very careful because this is Dana's baby here, this car, our three kids, and then the car. I was next on the list. And, and so I'm driving from the church over, the office is over, and I started hitting all these bumps. Well, in the middle of that, the cap that this yellow paint, that, that was on this yellow paint came off, and paint started to slosh into the car, into the blue interior of the car. So I get to the church, and I start unloading, and I'm like, oh, crap, there's yellow paint on the carpet. And so it was latex paint. I'm thinking, oh, I can just use some water on this and it'll come out. Can I tell you it doesn't work? I grabbed a wet cloth and I started to wipe the yellow paint. And pretty soon a spot that was like this big became a spot that was like this big. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. Every time I wiped with water, it got worse and worse and messier and messier and dirtier and dirtier. And all I could think of was Dana is going to kill me. I put yellow paint on the blue carpet of her car. Can I tell you that when we try to clean up messes that we make with God and in our walk with him, it goes down exactly like me trying to clean the paint up out of the inside of our car. We never get it right. We only make it worse. And the stain becomes bigger and uglier than we ever thought it would be. The reason is we cannot clean up our own sin. No matter how hard we try, we cannot clean it up. There's only one thing that can clean up our sin messes, and that's Jesus. See, we need to stop waiting until we get things cleaned up because we just can't do it. And Jesus knows we can't clean it up. Jesus knows we cannot take care of it. We need, he needs us to come to him and go to him and say, Jesus, look, I've got this mess. I've got this sin. I've got this stuff that's really jacking my life up, and I need you to come and clean it up because I'm just making it worse. And when we do that, Jesus comes and cleans the stain and gets us going in the right direction. Quit trying to do it yourself. It just doesn't work. But wait, you say, I give it to Jesus. I ask him to clean it up, and I still struggle with the same sin over and over again. Can I tell you that's part of the process? But we think if Jesus would just set me free from the struggle, then I would be free from the cage, and I could be called the one that Jesus loved. Struggling with sin is part of the deal. It's something that John did as well. 
And so to set up this next story we're going to look at in the, in the life of John, I just want to ask you guys, has anyone ever struggled with any sort of road rage in here this morning? Anyone road rage? Yeah. A few of you are honest. The rest of you are just lying. All right. Because I struggle with road rage sometimes. And, and the worst thing, I just hate it. When people think that you're going 55, that they can just pull out in front of you, not even try to accelerate, and they expect you to slam on, their bra- on your brakes to avoid them. Drives me insane. Well, let me tell you, sometimes I'm in the car and I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to ram this guy. That'll teach this punk a lesson about pulling out in front of me. And usually, if Dana's in the car, she knows what I'm thinking, and she'll look at me and she'll say, stop it right now, because she can tell where I'm going. Well, in this next event we're going to look at, John got a little bit of road rage going on here. And so we're going to read Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 51 through 56. And uh, this is what it says in Luke 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Jesus and the disciples on their way to Jerusalem. This is the final trip to Jerusalem for Jesus. This is the trip where he gets into the city and he eventually ends up getting arrested and tried and crucified. And they're on their way down and they they come to a Samaritan village and they need supplies to continue on their trip. And so they they send some people in to ask for the supplies. And they go in and they ask for the supplies and they say, no, no, we're not giving you anything. We're not giving you jack. Go someplace else, buddy. We're not giving you nothing because you're going to Jerusalem. Just on a side note here, um, do you see that Jesus just got told no about something and there was nothing he could do about it? A lot of times we think that if our life was like Jesus, where everything was yes all the time and everything went our way, life would be better. But guess what? Jesus got told no too. And he had to accept that and he had to move on. That's just a side note. Has nothing to do with the message. I just found that interesting. But but here he is. They they come to this city. They ask the city for food. They say no. They ask the city for supplies. They say no. And so John and James, what do they say? Jesus, we got a plan. Let's murder the whole city. That's what they said. Let's bring fire down upon them and destroy the city. John had some stuff going on in here that he wanted to wipe out an entire city, right? Because, I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever had that thought. You don't need to raise your hand if you said, you know what, God, just wipe Lakeland out. Just wipe Mulberry out. I'm sick and tired of that. But John wants to kill an entire city. And can I tell you, that's not a very godly thing. That's not a very godly response. It was not something that Jesus wanted to see in his team and really You probably, as I already said, got a whole bunch of things going on inside of here. If your go-to response when somebody tells you no about something is, let's kill everybody. That's the plan, kill everybody. But yet, even when John had all that ungodliness going on inside of him, even when he was ready to wipe out an entire village, Jesus responds to him a couple of days later with this. And this is John 15, verses 13 through 15. 
he says this, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friend if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus called them friends. Jesus still said, John, even though a few days ago you're ready to nuke an entire village and kill everyone in there, I still love you. I'm still going to die for you. But that's not, there's more to this. I mean, even at this last supper, when, when Jesus spoke those words to the disciples, in the middle of this time when Jesus is pouring out his heart, all the disciples get into an argument. They want to know who's greater in the kingdom of God. I mean, it's like a fight breaks out because they want to know who's greater. And so the disciples are, are struggling with sin themselves. And then to top it all off, um, when we leave from this event and Jesus goes out and gets ready to be crucified, what happens? Jesus, all of these people that are following Jesus, all of these people that Jesus says that he loves them so much he's going to lay down his life for them, they all abandon Jesus. They all walk away from Jesus. They all disappear, including John. None of them are there for Jesus in his darkest time. When he was in the fight for his life, when he needed his friends the most, they were nowhere to be found. But Jesus still called them friends and died for them. But it doesn't end there. Not only did they abandon them, but it seems that Jesus made no difference in their lives because they went back to the life they were living before they met Jesus. We're going to turn to the last chapter of John, John 21, and read verses 1 through 8. This is what it says there. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that, that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped in the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. What was John doing before he met Jesus? Fishing. Now, after he betrays and abandons Jesus, he goes back to what he was doing before he met Jesus. Now, I understand it's not wrong, it's not sinful to go fishing or to be a fisherman, but I think it illustrates what happens to many followers of Jesus. You see, we began to follow Jesus. We begin to walk with him. And then as we get in the battles and the struggles of life, we get into the battles and the struggles that we have with sin and temptation and we're, we're fighting and we're battling and we're, we're at war with this thing and, 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 and we're looking at ourselves and we're saying, man, God must not love me very much because of all of these battles that I'm facing. And so we start to cage ourselves in outside of God's love and put ourselves in this cage. And then as we start to, you know, as we, as we watch more and more and we see the sin continue, the the bars on the cage grow stronger and stronger as we sit there and we say to ourselves, man, I'm trapped in this cage. I'm doing so many bad things and there's nothing God can do to help me here. And so we just get so far back, we get so far down in our cage that we end up right back where we started when we met Jesus. We end up in the same dirt, the same filth, the same place that we never thought we were going to go back to. 
I mean, John never thought he would be back here fishing when Jesus called him. It said in the text that we read earlier that they left their nets, that they left their boat, that they left their father. They left it all. They walked away from it. They never planned on coming back because he wouldn't have left his nets behind. He wouldn't have left his boat behind. He wouldn't have left his father who was setting the course for his life behind if he intended on coming back. Joe, if you could come on back up. But see, even in this place, see, even back at the beginning, Jesus shows up there and once again calls him friend. You see, John did not get too far from God. John did not screw up so much that Jesus was done with him. Jesus did not put John in the cage of being a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God because of how far away he got. And instead, he speaks the same words to him that he spoke to him before he willingly gave up his life for him. And he said, you are my friend. Jesus loved John before John ever knew who Jesus was, before John ever did anything for Jesus, before he ever wrote a word on a piece of paper, before he spent the rest of his life telling people about who Jesus was. Jesus loved John. And if you're here this morning and you feel like Jesus doesn't love you because of who you are or what you've done, can I tell you that's a cage that you've placed yourself in? But can I also tell you There's nothing Jesus can do to set you free from that cage. See, the only way we can get free from that cage that we're in of not believing and not trusting in God and his love is by us saying, you know what? I'm going to believe regardless of what I am seeing. I am going to believe regardless of what I am feeling. And see, that's the struggle is that we've gone, our society has gone towards really depending upon our feelings. Our feelings are unreliable. Our feelings are untrustworthy. They change from minute to minute. One day I can just be, or one minute I can just be loving my wife and five minutes later I could be hating her. That's how our feelings go. That's how our feelings roll. Most days I don't feel Jesus' love. doesn't mean it's not there. But we have to move past our feelings to faith. You see, Jesus says, I love you. Jesus says, I've laid down my life for you. He didn't say, as long as you do X, Y, and Z, I will continue to love you. He says, I love you with an everlasting love. The sin, the trouble, the trials, the pain, the hurt, the everything else that's happening in this life, Those are not the things that dictate my love. Those are not the things that say how much I love you. Doesn't matter where we're at, how far we've gotten, how much dirt we might be in, Jesus is still calling us the ones that he loves. Whether you think you're good enough, too dirty, or maybe your present sin, I mean, it could be that you've fallen back so far that you're back to where you first met Jesus. It doesn't matter. When Jesus sees you, he calls you friend. And you can believe that he looks at you and he sees the same nickname that John wrote down in his gospel 2,000 years ago written across your forehead. He looks at you and he sees the one Jesus loves written right there. He doesn't see anything else because he loves you. He cares about you. He wants you to be free from the cage that holds you back and says... God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me.